Luke, the fourth chapter. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted by the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward was a hungry. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it may be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone." And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Well, we have studied the prediction of the coming of the Messiah by the prophets. We have seen the preparation for the Messiah by the ministry of John the Baptist. And then in a last message two weeks ago, we have seen the public appearance of the Messiah at the baptism of John. And this event is important in many ways, but it's important because it marked the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. It identified the Messiah to the nation. Now, you and I, of course, we know a little more of the story than uh, than this. We've read in the early chapters of Matthew and the early chapters of Luke about the birth of Christ, the things going on around that, about the visit of the Magi from Persia, about the uh, shepherds seeing the angels out in the hills of Judea. But remember that to the bulk of the populace, they didn't know anything about that. You and I sort of have a little inside information here that the rest of the nation didn't know. All they know is suddenly a man that looks a whole lot like Elijah eats bugs, wears camel skin out there in the wilderness, has appeared on the scene. He's obviously a prophet. He is calling men down to his baptism to prepare them for the appearance of the Messiah. And John is telling them that he's already among you. He's here, but you don't know him yet. And one of the purposes of John's baptism was to identify him because God had told John that the one upon whom heaven opened and the Spirit descending as a dove, he is the one. That's him. But not only does John's baptism identify Christ to the nation, may I suggest to you this morning that it also identified Christ to Satan? You see, Satan has from the beginning attempted to destroy this creature, man. That if we learn anything from the Old Testament picture of what was going on in the Garden of Eden and the scriptures that relate to that, we're given the, the idea that Satan was sort of placed over man as his guardian. 
as his supervisor, we might say. That man was placed under Satan, as we would say, someone is placed under you for their well-being. Now, there's, I, I won't go in, if you're interested in exploring any of this, I recommend highly to you in the works of Jonathan Edwards under his chapter called Miscellaneous Observations. You were just reading in that last week, right? That's where you were. In Miscellaneous Observations, you will find a wealth of information there of Edward's thoughts along these lines, some of the deductions that he has made and why he makes them, some of the scriptures where he sees some of this stuff. And I uh, certainly can't disagree with Edwards uh, on many things and wouldn't attempt to do so. I believe he's right on the money here, that this was precisely what Satan's role was in the Garden of Eden. And may I suggest to you that Satan's fall was not antecedent to the fall of man, but was coincidental with it. That it was the act of Satan in bringing man into sin that was not only man's act of rebellion, but was Satan's act of rebellion. Now, I know sin begins in the mind. It begins in the ruminations of us thinking about it. But sin ultimately comes out in an action. And you say, well, what, for what action was Satan, did he fall? And I believe as God spoke to that serpent... Because thou hast done this. It's for this that you are cursed. It's because of this that you fall and Satan loses his first estate. Further, I'm convinced the more I study it that Satan's act of bringing man into sin was not just a irrational lashing out at man. We sort of imagine that Satan just sort of came through the Garden of Eden like a tornado to just sort of destroy and tear up Jack, as we'd say. I don't believe that was the case at all. I believe, in fact, that what Satan was doing there was not just an irrational thing, but was a shrewd, calculated, even brilliant attempt to overthrow the purpose of God for man, to overthrow the rule and the kingdom of God. Now, when I say it was a brilliant attempt, you understand that sort of like the parable of the unjust steward, we can admire someone's wisdom without admiring their morality. It was a very evil thing. It was an act of the very pentacle and peak of rebellion against God, but it was shrewd. Because as far as Satan was concerned, what he did to man in the Garden of Eden put God, if we think of this as a gigantic chess game, it put God in check. In other words, Satan could say to God, I have thwarted your purpose. I have thwarted your plan. Because I believe along with Edwards that the incident, if we say what was it that pushed Satan over the edge, what was it that caused his rebellion? You know, as long as everything goes all right, we generally do pretty good. But there's generally something that causes us when we sin, when to rebel against God. There's something that causes us and brings it about. And I believe along with Edwards that what it was, was that when it was revealed to Satan, or as John Gershner puts it, Edwards' biographer, when the news leaked out in heaven that it was God's ultimate purpose to take this creature, man, that he had placed 
under the angels. And his ultimate purpose for man was to exalt him above the angels. That's, that was the incident, that was the occasion of Satan's rebellion. That pushed him, as it were, over the edge. And he now, rather than protects and guards this creature, he comes into the Garden of Eden to destroy him. And in the process, to put God in check. To say, as it were, to God, you have purpose to place this lowly creature above all others. You have purpose to give this creature eternal life. I have brought your creature into sin. How in the world are you going to fulfill your purpose without violating your holiness? How will you give life to this creature whom you have said with your own words, the day that he does something like this, he'll surely die. How will you give life to one you have ordained must die for the offense that he has rendered? Do you see the problem? Or if we were to put it in more theological terms, and this is, by the way, the big problem. This is the heart and soul of the gospel. How can God be merciful and yet at the same time be just? In our minds, it just doesn't seem like there's a way. When you're standing before the judge, he can either be merciful to you, or he can do what's right, what the law demands. But it doesn't seem to us he can do both. How will God be able to save this creature that his justice demands must be destroyed? That's the problem. That's the box, as it were, that it appears that Satan has placed God in. And you may think about it. You'd say, well, doesn't he have to do something more than that to overthrow the rule of God? My friend, all you've got to do to overthrow the rule of the moral universe is show that the one running the show is himself immoral. That he either cannot fulfill his purposes on the one hand or he is unjust on the other. Well, I'll leave you to rudiment as the old cows chew the cud. Chew that cud for a little bit. But I believe that we do notice here that... Something happens when Jesus is identified by John the Baptist as the Messiah. For back at the fall of man, God, rather than wringing his hands and saying, Oh my, oh my, what has Satan done to me? I, you know, all is lost. God instead gives man a promise. In fact, it's in a conversation with the serpent, you remember, that the very first hint that God was going to send someone Someone called the seed of the woman, who though his heel would be bruised, he would crush the serpent's head. Someone who would not only destroy Satan, but as the book of Hebrews puts it, would destroy the works of the devil. He would, you know, on your computer, when you got your word processor going and you do something wrong, or you got a graphics program and, 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 you know, you mess it up, and you go up there to the edit menu, and you see that undo you know, you hit that undo and it puts it back like it was. My friend, that's what Jesus came to do, was to undo what Satan had done. And not only to undo what Satan did, but to fulfill 
God's purpose for man. And the first hint that someone's coming is in this conversation that God is having with the serpent that rather than you having succeeded, just wait and see, buddy. Somebody's coming. You'll bruise his heel. He will crush your head. And now he's here. Now he is marked out. Now, I don't think Satan knew for 30 years where he was. You remember the first time Satan seemed to know where he was, and I say this on the basis of Revelation chapter 12. John there in the Revelation sees a vision of a great dragon, a dragon that's identified as none other than Satan himself. And there's a woman about to give birth to a child, a man-child, who will rule all nations. You familiar with the text? Revelation chapter 12. Now, the man-child... That's going to rule all nations. I mean, that's pretty simple. Even I can figure that out. That's, that's Christ. And he's born and he's caught up to heaven, caught up to the throne of God. Of course, that's a very condensed version of Jesus' life. You think Mark's condensed. That's about as condensed as it's going to get. The woman has the child and he's caught up to heaven to rule from the right hand of God. But clearly, that's the Messiah. But notice that the dragon, Satan, is poised over the child. The text says to destroy him, to kill him as soon as he's born. Now I ask the question, is there some historical parallel where there was an attempt made on the life of our Lord as soon as he was born? Well, yeah, sure enough, there was, wasn't they? Because when those wise men, we call them, came from the east... They came to King Herod. They didn't know where else to go, asking, where is he? Where's this new king? And Herod begins to say, well, I don't know where he is, but when you find him, you come back and tell me. Because I want to go worship him, that fox. I want to kill him. And he did the best he could do. When he saw that he was mocked by the wise men, he knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. So he sent his soldiers to, to kill all those male infants under two years of age there in Bethlehem in an attempt to destroy the Christ as soon as he was born. But Joseph and Mary, being warned, didn't go back home. You remember, they went to Egypt and then from Egypt back to Nazareth. In other words, not only did Herod lose him, it appears that Satan lost him too. Do you understand what's going on then? That King Herod would have been the instrument that Satan is using. In the Revelation, we're looking at the spiritual side of things. Satan is the one attempting to destroy the Christ, but it is King Herod who is the physical instrument that is being employed in this attempt. You follow what I'm saying? Herod is Satan's tool to destroy the Christ. That's an assault that he made on him as soon as he was born. But there is no other assault for 30 years. In other words, I call the sermon title this morning, The First Temptation of Christ. Playing a little bit on the movie title, you know. But a um, very blasphemous movie, I'm, I'm told, The Last Temptation of Christ. But I'm calling this the first temptation of Christ because I believe that's precisely what it was. The first temptation of Jesus as Christ, as the Messiah. For I do believe that Satan didn't know where he was for 30 years. But as soon as Jesus is marked out, as soon as Jesus is identified to the nation by the baptism of John, what happens He is led into the wilderness. The Gospel of Mark says he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now he knows where he is. Now there will be the contest. 
Now, let us ask a few questions. I'm really sort of setting the stage this morning, just a general message without dealing with the specific temptations. Just an overview this morning of the temptation of Christ, and several questions need to be answered. First of all, how do you go about tempting God? How can God be tempted? In James, the first chapter, in verse 13, James declares that God neither tempts any man with good or evil, neither can he be tempted with good or evil. In other words, it's impossible for God to either be tempted or to tempt. And if Jesus be the Son of God, then how is it possible for him to be tempted? Do do you follow my drift here? Do you see my question? But to tempt someone may mean one of two things. It may mean a solicitation to do evil, an enticement to do evil or to sin. Now, that's usually how we employ the word. I'm on a diet, and Helen brings one of her dishes to fellowship, and I'm tempted to violate my diet. You know, it's Helen's fault. She's tempting me, solicitating me to dive into that pie or whatever it is. It's all Helen's fault. Uh Well, that's exactly what these people that James is writing to are saying. Well, when I'm tempted, it's God who's putting this in me. It's God's fault that I have this drawing thing towards sin. And that's what James is dealing with there in that passage. He says, oh no, when a man is tempted, don't let him say he's tempted of God. You're tempted because of your own lust. If there wasn't that lust in your heart for this thing, you wouldn't be tempted. And that explains why it is that God cannot be tempted with good or evil. You can wave sin in front of God all day long, and he has no desire. It is not a desirous thing for God. There's nothing in his nature that is attracted by sin. We take a magnet. That magnet has an attractive power, doesn't it? But only to metal, only to iron. It won't affect wood. And so it is, my friend, the very fact that sin has a desirable Uh, you have a desirable view towards sin, shows that you have a sin nature. Whether or not you actually commit the sin, the very fact that you can be tempted by sin, isn't that a humbling thought? In other words, if you were like God, be like trying to uh, use sin like a magnet on a piece of wood. There's nothing in God that responds to the drawing power of sin, but you let you or me get around it, and we're drawn, we're enticed. It draws us. It has a powerful pull on us, doesn't it? The very fact that that's true shows that we have a sin nature. There's something in us that responds to sin, but it's not in God. But that even makes it more difficult then. How is it that Jesus, the Son of God, can be tempted? Well, there's another way the word temptation is used, and it's used in the sense of testing. Although God, as James says, does not tempt us in the sense of putting a desire for sin in our hearts, he does test us, and he tests us often. All through the Old Testament, you'll find God testing Israel. And in that sense, we are taught by our Lord to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer to God, lead us not into what? Temptation. Don't, don't lead us. We're not, we're not to approach God saying, man, God, just bring on the trials. I can take anything, you know. Here I am. But, ooh, 
you know, I, I don't know whether I'll stand or fall. Uh, please don't put me in these testing circumstances and situations. And in that sense, God, well, in that sense, God does tempt because he tries and he tests. But even that is difficult to do with God. If we look at the means that Satan uses here in this temptation, he uses food, or what we would call the fleshly appetite. He uses the desire for, for something, for possessions. I mean, he shows Jesus all the world and says, they all be yours. He uses the desire for fame and for glory when he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and wants him to jump off and sort of do this evil Knievel type of stunt here to show everybody who you are, show off a little bit. But can you use those things as ploys against God Almighty? I mean, does God get hungry? He won't, you know, he he walks by and sees that apple pie and just can't hardly stand it because it smells so good. My friend, if there's anything we know about God, it's that he's self-existent. He needs nothing outside of himself. No, God doesn't get hungry. And you can wave a loaf of bread under his nose all day long and he won't ever get hungry. And that's one of the things that God, that Paul taught the Athenians up on Mars Hill. He says, God is not worshipped by man's hands as though he needeth anything. He doesn't need you to feed him. doesn't need you to build him a house. Now those pagan gods, they may need your help. In fact, they need lots of help. They don't talk much. They don't walk much. They just sort of stand there. And they need you to bring them all sorts of stuff and do all sorts of stuff for them. But the God that I'm presenting to you, says Paul, he doesn't need you. He does very well without you. Thank you very kindly. I know it's popular to say that God created man because he's just so lonely. Wants somebody to talk to. My friend, God was infinitely happy for you and I arrived on the scene. Content in himself. Sufficient in himself, self-existent. See, that's a big difference between you and him. Lots of differences, but that's one of the major ones. No, God doesn't get hungry. And and what are you going to offer God? God will give you all this stuff. Well, my friend, he owns the cattle on Thousand Hills. I mean, they might have your brand on them, but they're his. You may have a deed to your property you're living on, but it's his earth, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth itself and everything in it already is his. How are you going to entice him with saying, well, God, I'll give you this 40 acres back here if you'll just do this for me. I'll give you a little of my money. It's already his. Oh, you may be using it for the moment. You may be living on it. You may be walking on the ground, but it's his. How in the world are you going to use that against God? And then thirdly, are you going to offer him more glory? I mean, he dwells in glory. He dwells in light, unapproachable, says Paul. Or you're going to say, well, God, if you just do this, you'd be more glorious. In other words, how would these three things work against God? Well, they wouldn't. But what if God becomes man? Now, I'm not talking about just God masquerading as a man, God in a man suit. That just, you know, he may eat something every now and then, but he really doesn't ever get hungry. He just, or he can turn his hunger on or off. He just pretends he's hungry. No, I'm not talking about God in a man suit. I'm talking about God actually taking upon himself the nature of man. Being a man just like you and I, sin being accepted, and I keep reminding you, sin does not make you a man. 
Adam was a man before he sinned. But what if he should take the nature of man upon him? My friend, now God gets hungry. Now God can be said, if you can have this, or you can have this glory. Do you notice that these three things, the desire for food, it's not sinful in itself. The desire to obtain, the desire to possess and be fruitful, that's not a sinful desire in itself. In fact, you know, we all have that. That's sort of built in our being to be productive and fruitful. We're taught that from the scriptures. Or the desire for that which is glorious, that which is beauteous. That's not a sinful desire. That's part of our being construed in the image of God himself. But my friend, now if God becomes man, those things can become pry bars, a pry bar. Those things can be used because now God does get hungry, especially after 40 days of not eating. Now God doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills. And you know I'm speaking here of Christ as man that there are times that he says the foxes as a whole to live in, the birds have their nest, but I, the Son of Man, have not where to lay my head. don't even have a place to lay down. Can you imagine God, the mighty Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth, who says he doesn't even have a place to lay his head? The very fact that he needs a place to lay his head is amazing enough that he doesn't have a place to lay his head. And so now... Satan can use these areas, and areas, by the way, that work so well with everybody else. I'm trying to find my place. I've lost my notes here. I just wanted to, before I leave this page, (laughs) remind you that Jesus had been tempted, I suppose, on many occasions prior to this as a mere man just as you and I are, temptations common to man. We find, for instance, in one of the gospel accounts that four of his brothers are listed and they say Mary and his sisters are here. He had at least two sisters. So Jesus grew up in a family with seven children. Kim, how many kids you got? About to have seven. Okay. You got the picture. Grew up in a family with seven kids. You think he wasn't tempted? (laughs) He wasn't tested before this? I expect he was. In the same way that you and I are tested in those situations, in those trials. But he had not been tested as the Messiah, as the Son of God till this point. And I want you to notice that these tests are configured For Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Let me talk about what I'm talking about. These are not, the on the one hand, these are not the normal temptations of life that you and I face. You know, for instance, I was out working in the yard yesterday and I saw this big old rock and the devil came to me and says, You know, Mark, why don't you employ your supernatural powers and turn that rock into a big old hot, steamy loaf of bread? Well, that happens to me all the time. Doesn't it happen to you? Well, no, it doesn't, does it? 
Do you see, on the one hand, these temptations are peculiar. It is the devil knowing that this person does have the power to turn stones into bread. He wouldn't have tempted him to do it if he didn't know that he had the power. How do you know he had the power? Well, I believe Isaiah told them that his name would be called Wonderful, which means full of wonders. It was foretold that he would be a wonder-working person. And so Satan is tempting him, knowing him who he is now, to use this power. Secondly, you know, I was just sitting around the house the other day, sitting in my easy chair, and the devil came to me and says, you know, I'm looking for somebody to rule my planet. And, uh, you know, I about decided you're the man. You're the one I want to be the head honcho, the king of all the earth. Has that happened to you a lot? Hadn't happened to me. You know, most of us sell out for dog catcher. We're never offered the top job. But you'll notice that Satan here in this temptation is offering Jesus top, the chief seat, the highest room in his kingdom, saying, and I know there are those who say, well, he's just bluffing here in verse 6, where the devil says unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. I have the right to give it to whom I will. That's what he's saying. It's mine. Speaking of as Satan, the god of this world, and I have the right to give it to whom I will. I can give it to top place. That doesn't happen much to me. I doubt it happens to you either. But it happened to Jesus. And thirdly, you know, I was down at the Clark Tower the other day. I was up on the top floor. And, you know, the devil came to me and said, Just jump off, Mark. I, you know, God's promised he'll not let you hurt yourself. Well, I know that theologically I'm predestined to die on a certain day. Certainly God knows the day I'm going to die. And that means until that day rolls around, I'm immortal. I can't die. Of course, I could be seriously injured. Could live as a vegetable for the rest of my days. Or, for all I know, today could be that day. But Jesus, on the other hand, there's a little difference here. He knew. He knew he could not die. He must lay down his life. Isn't that what he said? No man takes my life from me. There are those who say, well, the devil misquoted this text out of Psalm 91 about the angels. I don't think so. I don't think that's a misquote at all. That that's precisely what that text is saying. That nothing's going to happen to you till God allows it. A thousand may fall at thy right hand, ten thousand at thy left. Nothing will not come nigh thee. The angels will bear thee up. That indeed is a... Psalm speaking of God's protection over his own, that nothing can harm them except that which God allows to come their way. I don't think that's a misquote. And Jesus, it applied peculiarly to him because he knew he could not die. He must lay down his life. But there's a difference between getting pushed off the temple and jumping off the temple. To jump off the temple and to expect God to work a miracle is not faith. It is blind, blatant presumption. And that is what Jesus replies, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So on the one hand, these are temptations that are peculiar. 
They've been configured, designed for Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. And yet, on the other hand, they are those temptations that are common to man. What uh, John would say in 1 John 2, he describes the three principles that this world operates by. And by the way, what we call the world in the New Testament is nothing more than the visible expression of Satan's kingdom. Just as the church, I don't believe the church and the kingdom of God are necessarily identical, but the church is to be the place where the principles of the kingdom of heaven are being manifested. The world is the place where the principles of Satan's kingdom are being manifested. In 1 John chapter 2, John mentions the things that are of the world. He says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, here's what the world consists of. And we think he's talking about my car or my, my house. No, he lists three things. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the desire to fulfill your own appetites, the things that your flesh wants. And we mean by that what's going on here, the desire for food, the desire for water, the desire for sex. All of these areas, these appetites of the flesh, that lust. Secondly, the lust of the eyes, that which is Beauteous. I, you know, people have killed people for a diamond. And what are you going to do with a diamond? You can't eat it. Get real hungry. See how far that diamond goes. Why is it that you ladies get so, you know, all, all, all in a thing, a hiff about, a, about a little old shiny rock that you put on your finger? Well, there's this thing called the lust of the eyes. It looks pretty. It's beauteous. It's valuable. And the lust, or what he calls the pride of life, that I want to look good in front of everybody else. My friend, those three things drive what is called the world. You don't believe it? Look at the advertising that goes on today. You know, they may be selling a, a car, and what do they do? They got this little scandally clad gal standing there showing it off. Now, what is she? I'm sure she is a qualified mechanic, you know. She's knows all about cars and could, I'm sure it's for her mind that she's standing up there uh, modeling and showing off this car. Oh, it's the lust of the flesh. We know what it is. And it does get our attention, doesn't it? It's the lust of the eyes. Why doesn't that car look like mine? It needs a wash. Mud all over it. Why is it so shiny and pretty? And then there's that little subtle thing that we call the pride of life that only the smart people drive this kind of car. People got it together. People get the girls. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the subtle message, and you'll see it in your advertising all around you. It's what Satan has used from day one. He doesn't switch devices. He doesn't switch his, his ploys because his old devices work so well. Man's nature is still the same and he still falls prey to these same three things. And you'll see those same three things in the temptation of our Lord. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes showed him all the glory of the world. Says you can have it. The pride of life. Go show them who you are. Jump off that temple. Stretch your stuff. 
show off a little bit. And those the same three devices that work so well with you and me. In Christ, there is no responsive cord whatsoever. Get thee behind me. Get away. Is that the best you can do? Instantly. Not for a moment. Now notice, these are real tests. He was really hungry. He wasn't pretending. It was real. And yet, not for an instant does he even contemplate the idea of falling prey to this device of the devil. Oh, so much to say, so little to say it. I just um, <laughs> got to start cutting here. We're sandwich time. It's bologna time. Now, I keep touting these bologna sandwiches, and you all will be urging me to go a little longer this morning because of the, the prospect of that bologna. But obviously we have the Lord's table to observe today. Let me just make a couple of other observations. That these temptations of Christ also would be, in our eyes, little things, minor things. Sort of like go back to the Garden of Eden. It was just a a fruit. That's all it was, just a fruit. And in this case, it's just... Satisfying your hunger. I mean, what's wrong with that? In other words, the devil didn't come to Jesus and say, I want you to go out and murder a hundred people today. Or I want you to go to rape. Or I want you to go steal. I want you to get up and lie to folks. None of the biggies. What is it? It's, why don't you eat? But in these temptations, we see the foundation of Satan's kingdom. That what appears to our eyes to be little bitty things are in fact revealing the very foundation of Satan's kingdom that basically says, live for yourself. Or we may put it in the advertising slogans, you only go around once, you've got to grab for all the gusto. Get it. Seize it. Lay hold of it. My friend, that's what makes Satan's kingdom tick. I am convinced that Satan doesn't want a kingdom of losers. Of drug addicts and drunks and prostitutes. That Satan would like to have a kingdom that he could be proud of. I'm really convinced that. But the problem is, the very thing that makes his kingdom tick is the thing that brings about that fruit. What is it James says? From whence come fightings and wars among you? Come they not of your own lusts? In other words, you see, as long as we're all trying to be number one, how many number ones can there be? Now, if we're all wanting to be servants, how many servants can there be? You see where the problem comes? If we're all aspiring for what we can get, the problem is it's in somebody else's hands. And for us to get it, we've got to take it away from them. If we want to rule, you're going to have a hard road to hoe if that's what floats your boat because everybody else out there wants to rule. Oh, I want to go out there and rule over folks. Well, that's fine, but they want to rule over you. And there's where the wars and the fightings. I'm going to tell you what to do rather than you telling me what to do. You're going to serve me rather than me serving you. But my friend, if what floats your boat is another kingdom 
where greatness is not measured in how many folks you can rule, but how many folks you can serve. Where greatness is measured not in what you can get, but in what you can give. Where life is found not in getting, but losing. Then I want to tell you about a kingdom that God established in His own Son, Jesus Christ. And all the best little glimpse I can give you of it is that night, the night He was betrayed, knowing that He came from God, knowing He was returning to God, knowing who He was, knowing what He was all about, lays aside His garment, girds Himself with a towel, and gets down on His knees and washes dirty, stinking feet. You see, what He's showing us is you want to be... I mean, isn't it strange... That your misery indexed is all index is always going to be connected to your self-centeredness index. That the more self-centered you are, the more miserable you will be. The more greedy you are, the more empty you will be. You say, well, it shouldn't work that way. I'm telling you, that's just the way it is. That's the facts of life. That's what Satan's kingdom goes by. And that's what makes the kingdom of God so different. And so I would suggest to you that when we look around and we say, I want to, can you show me someone that Satan just owns? You know, we have this idea of satanic possession if their head doesn't do 360s and projectile vomiting, you know, they're not possessed by the devil. Or, you know, the devil's really got someone there down in the gutter on the down here in the middle of town. Oh, no, my friend. Oh, no. The captives to Satan. Do you remember Jesus had that little conversation with religious folks in John 8? The chief men of his day. And said, you are of your father, the devil, and his lust you will do. You think you've got free will, but when your daddy says hop, you hop. He's got your number. You have shackles on you. You are slaves to your master. And I came so that men might know the truth and that they might be set free. Now, he's not talking to a bunch of drunks. He's not talking to a bunch of crackheads. He's not talking to a bunch of prostitutes. He's talking to the chief religious men of his day. My friend, you want to see captives to Satan, you'll find them down in the gutter. You'll also find them in the boardrooms. You'll find them in the state houses. And oh, there's one thing you must learn. You must learn to recognize Satan's devices. And I give you the clue, the clue, clue, if I can say it. The clue. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Oh, I don't care how good it looks. I don't care if it talks about God. Satan did. I don't care if it quotes Scripture. Satan did. When you find those elements, that which puffs up man's pride, that which entices his flesh, that which is sensual and appeals to his sensual, you can be sure that the devil is right in the middle of it. No matter how wonderful it sounds, no matter how high and lofty what is being touted, no matter how religious it appears, the devil is in the middle of it.
May I close with um, a reminder about that one day. Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, A+. And then Peter doesn't do so well, for Jesus goes on to tell him that the Son of God, he's got to go to Jerusalem, he's got to be delivered in the hands of the chief priests, the elders are going to be crucified, going to be slain, going to rise again the third day. And Peter began to tell him, says, no, no. Oh, no, be this far from you. I will never let this happen to you. And Jesus turns and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things that are of God, but the things that are of man. In other words, Peter, you stink. I, I believe I smell a rat here. You, you're giving off an odor here, and it's not the odor, it's not the smell of the things of God, it's the smell of man's things, of the world. I believe I smell the devil. That's my little paraphrase, but that's basically what Jesus is saying. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Uh, the commentators say, well, it's because Peter was trying to divert Jesus from the cross, that that's what Satan was trying to do. Nonsense. Everything Satan was trying to do was trying to get Jesus on the cross. That's clear from the gospel record. I don't believe that's the reason. That Jesus identifies Peter here as Satan. But I'll tell you what it is. And you'll find it in some of your Bibles in the marginal rendering of this text. Where Peter says, be it far from thee. There is another way to render that little Greek phrase. And it is this. Pity yourself. Jesus, you came from God. You came into this world. From day one, you have lived your life for others. You have healed. You've cast out demons. You've had nothing for yourself. For once in your life, think of yourself. Jesus instantly says, Get thee back. I've heard this stuff before on a mountain when the devil came and said, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Oh my. What kingdom are you of this morning? I ought to give you some hints. I ought to give you some help. What floats your boat? To what system do you belong? The one that says, I will, I will, I will. Or the one that says, not my will, but thine be done. Let us pray. Father, give us insight. Give us help that we might not be ignorant of Satan's devices. May we spot them. May we recognize that stench. May we despise even the garment spotted by the flesh. May we never walk by the principles of this world. Father, may we seek to walk in the steps of our Master. 
who disdained even the suggestion of living for himself, of seeking his own things, but showed us that there was another way, a way of blessing, a way of happiness, a way of fulfillment, a way of joy, that in order to have it, we must lose, lose our life in order to keep it and to find life. Showed us that we couldn't do for ourselves, that he had to come and do it for us. Oh, what a blow to our pride that is. For we think ourselves capable, we think ourselves able, and yet the gospel tells us that we're hopeless, doomed outside of Christ. So may our pride receive that deadly blow. May you break the back of our pride that we be broken before you. Oh, better to be broken in mercy now than broken in judgment later, dashed in pieces. Help us, Father, to honor Christ as Christians, to walk by his path, to emulate him, to manifest his character. May you help us, Father, to discern which path we're on here. Father, what does it matter that we speak religiously? We speak using scriptural terms. So does the devil. May we discern. Help us in that endeavor. Help us to remember our great Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.